Go ahead and open up your Bibles this week to Genesis chapter 11. We are going to wrap up our series on the Eden story. We've looked at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to finish here in Genesis uh, 11. And Lord willing, sometime we'll do a study on the patriarchs and maybe talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and also uh, Joseph as well at the end of the book. Someday, perhaps, we'll come back and, and go with that. But we're going to be in Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. These are the words of God. Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they have begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Let's pray. Our gracious Holy Father and God of all mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, and amen. You can be seated. Well, as we wrap up this series today, it should be obvious by now what the major themes are of Genesis 1 through 11. The entire book of Genesis emphasizes the rise and fall of paradise. The rise and fall of paradise. It talks much about decreation and recreation, uh, the new creation that God brings forth with a new establishment, a new covenant, those types of things. It talks a lot about new Adams and even worse, Cain's. Seed wars between the serpent and the woman. Covenant law and what God expects from his creatures. We have the concepts of rebellion and judgment as well. And we have the inescapability of religious presuppositions. That is, regarding that last part, man is always living life under the direction of religious conviction and confession everywhere is a religious conviction and confession whether it's the halls of congress or the abortion clinic down the street there everybody everywhere has this conviction and this confession and yet god's self-explanatory sovereignty superintends the entire program even in false confession and false religion and false worship, 
God is still sovereign. He, that doesn't change anything just because man rebels. And men will try to rid themselves of accountability to God's law word, but they cannot escape the need for some sort of sovereignty, some sort of unity, central planning, and collectivist power religion. The self-sufficient God has a quarrel with man because man has repeatedly tried to escape the notice and accountability of God by deifying himself. So sin is always an attempt to remove the necessity of God. We talk about sin in a good, you know, in the catechism, it's a good, it's falling short of, of God's law, that sort of thing, breaking God's law. And those are good concepts to remember. But sin is always an attempt to try to remove the necessity of God, to try to remove the factuality of God and his self-revelation and his existence. If men do not worship God on his terms, they don't stop being worshipers. They switch. They worship themselves on their own terms. That is the, those are the only two options. And they will downplay the doctrine of sin and guilt, they will demand that others serve them, and they will attempt to unify around the state, which will exercise total control, and they will believe the entire time that they are quite capable of establishing a paradise. I was just in D.C. Uh, this past week. I know, you pity me. Um, yeah. Everyone sighs. Oh, D.C. Uh, I was there visiting uh, a friend. He's the uh, He's a bishop and pastor in Zambia, and he was actually in town. So I ran over real quick, real quick, you know, to D.C. Um, and met with him for a little while, and he was on his way back. And Lord willing, I'll see him again later this year. But uh, you go around and you see Washington, D.C., and you, you believe that, wow, they're really trying to, to prove something here. <laughs> they're really trying to establish a paradise. And you drive by places like the IRS, and you think, well... More like, a, uh, more like the slums than anything. But men who worship themselves will adopt all sorts of androgynous perspectives. They will use science to control others. Question me, question science. Uh, they will also attempt to define life based on their autonomous lust. They will, quite literally, apart from Christ, men will seek to deliver themselves and they will stop at nothing to establish their own Godhead. This, all, everything I've just said, this is the story of Babel. The L in Hebrew is short for God, Babel, and we sometimes say Babel. Probably Babel would be the more, more accurate pronunciation. But anyway, let's look at our text. And I'm going to, before we look at the tower story, I want to begin with the end. I want to look at verses 10 through 32. In verse 10, we find the generations of Shem, Shem being one of the sons of Noah. Shem's name means name, which is quite ironic. What's your name? Name. And then you go around, what's your name? My name is Name. It's totally legit. That's a play on words, and it's going to show up in the first part of the chapter when these rebellious builders wanted to make a name for themselves. So we have a contradiction here. We have people wanting a name for themselves, and then we have Shem, whose name means name, and God will build that name. Sometimes Jews will refer to God as Hashem, the name, and it's important to note that Shem is the father of the people of Israel. So this is the line of Christ. This is the, everybody's line that we highlight in Scripture. 
And that's how we explain, by the way, Noah's blessing of him in chapter 9. Noah brought a blessing to Shem while Ham was, well, actually, Ham's son, Canaan, was cursed. We talked about that before. So God will establish his name through the name. That's the irony here. He's going to establish his name through name, through Shem. Shem, we know, will subdue Canaan. And already here in the first few chapters of Genesis, we have an indication of of Israel's future conquest of the land of Canaan, and we read about that in Joshua and Judges. So it's very connected. If you kind of dig in deep, you'll see that this is already something prophesied in chapter 9 that would later happen when Canaan was plundered by Israel because God had said Shem, Shem, not Ham, is going to be the one who has the line. So keep in mind, though, Japheth, he will dwell in the tents of Shem back in chapter 9, verse 27. So it is God through the literal tabernacle tent who will dwell in the tents of Shem. Finally, one note here in verse 26. In 26, we have Terah. He is the father of Abram. And we know that prepares us for the story of Abram in the next chapter. And before getting to the Abram story, verses 27 through 32 sort out the family tree. Abram took Sarai as as a wife. Haran, Abram's brother, had a son named Lot. And that's Abram's nephew. And those two will come into focus later on in Genesis. So they lived in the land of Canaan, Ur of the Chaldeans. And the story must continue as Abraham, when you turn the page and you get to chapter 12, Abram is a new Noah. He is a new Adam, and he is bringing the name of God to the nations. So the covenant that God makes with Abraham, Abram becomes Abraham, uh, God makes a covenant to bless the nations through his seed. And we know that from Galatians, we're talking about Christ. Christ is the seed, so that's the promise of Abraham, and the nations are thus blessed in the Messiah. So that kind of ties that thread together. Now, a quick reminder about genealogy here, uh, zooming out for a second. Noah is the 10th generation from Adam. Noah was the 10th generation from Adam. That's back in chapter 5. Abraham comes later, and curiously enough, Abraham is the 10th generation from Noah. That's what we find here in chapter 11. So new Adams come on the scene after 10 generations. There's significance to that. In fact, we know from the book of Ruth that David is the 10th generation after Judah. So there's something going on there. Noah, remember, Noah comes on the scene after wickedness has run amok. Wickedness has prevailed. God brings Noah, and he's going to flood the earth. Abram's actually in the same situation, though. As at the tower, men wanted a name for themselves, And in the Abram story, God answers that by making a name for himself. God is the name maker, not man. And that's the tension here between chapter 11 and going into chapter 12. Men who have sinned want to make a name for themselves, but God chooses Abram and says, I'm going to make my my name great through you and the seed that comes after you. So at the tower, men have disregarded the command and the order to be fruitful and multiply, And in Abram, God will multiply his seed in God's time. And so there's a tension here at the end of chapter 11 going into chapter 12. Now, back up to the first part in verse 1. The tower story packs quite a punch in just nine verses. Beginning in verse 1, the scene is set. The whole earth 
probably, people debate this, these things, right? They have time on their hands. Probably 30, maybe 40, even 50,000 people at this point. When you think about birth rates and post-flood, how many people were on the earth, that's a decent estimation. There may be more. But the whole earth at this point had the same language and the same words. Now, the LSB notes that the, the literal Hebrew tells us that they had the same lip and one word. If you take it very literally, they had the same lip and one word. There was unity in speech. There was unity in communication. You know, people ask this, kids, you might, you know, what, what language was it that they spoke? Well, the, the, there, there's reason to believe that quite probably it was Hebrew, and the Hebrews sort of just bend the language. Um, but, you know, I, I doubt it was like King James English at that point. But there was unity in speech and communication, no doubt. But when we go to the Bible, we find that the lip is connected to religious confession. The lip is, is religious confession. Zephaniah 3.9 reads this, For then I will change them to peoples with purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of Yahweh to serve him shoulder to shoulder. Malachi 2.7 says something very similar. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of Yahweh of hosts. So the, the lip in, in the Bible, the lip is the organ of religious confession. Remember, the eye is the organ of judgment. The lip is the organ of religious confession. Confessing Christ with the mouth and believing in the heart is what makes somebody a Christian. Romans tells us. You confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. That confession that comes from your lips comes from the heart. So it has to start in the heart. It starts in the inside and then comes from that and it moves out in religious confession. However, though, here we already have a problem in the text. This is the establishment of an organized, centralized religious confession of apostasy and power religion. That this is a religious endeavor because everything is a religious endeavor. And I love when somebody, when debating somebody, will say, well, I don't like organized religion. My response is always, well, you like disorganized religion then. And uh, it's, it's not a matter of organized or not. It will always be organized. Even in their disorderly conduct, it's organized. And that's because it's more than just how you assemble. It's what you say. It's what you confess. Now, in verse 2, we see that they journeyed east. Note that in the text. They journeyed east. To, to journey east is to move away from Eden, to move away from God, to go the way of wandering Cain. Remember, Cain ended up going east. So going east is bad. Now, I'm not saying today you should never go east, although D.C. is east of here, so maybe you shouldn't go there. That's the way of Cain. <laughs> You laugh because it's true. Uh, finding the plain in the land of Shinar, they settled there or they dwelt there. Would, the question in the text is, okay, they have the same lip, the same words. They journeyed east. Uh-oh, that's not good. What is going to happen next? Would they obey the commission to be fruitful and multiply? As you read the Bible, that's like the tension you feel in the text. What are they going to do next? Are they going to follow Yahweh or not? Well, to establish Christianity in the culture is a question. Is that what they're going to do? And verse 3 tells us what it is they decide. 
They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. (laughs) Here we go. Are you supposed to be doing that? Aren't you supposed to be fruitful, multiply, cultivate the earth, have children? Yes, you're supposed to develop culture, but are you supposed to immediately go and grab for bricks? When you see bricks, you should be thinking Exodus, Egypt, making bricks. There's a connection there. They had brick for stone, tar for mortar. They're doing a building project without a permit from Yahweh. Because that's the only permit necessary. We should note that cities are supposed to come later. Cities are to be developed, but they're supposed to come later. Building a city meant that they were not interested in filling or cultivating the earth. And remember, Noah built the vineyard. Noah didn't come along and say, let's build a city. That comes later. Building a city means that they are not willing to cultivate the earth. They are not willing to obey Yahweh and his commands. So instead of dispersing in obedience, they concentrate their forces together in order to challenge and defy the living God. And the question is, what will they build? Verse 4 explains. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city. Got a couple words here for you. Note that, a city. And a tower. So two things. A tower whose top will reach into heaven. They didn't think they were going to go 50 miles above the earth, by the way. Just in the sky, something, a sign of dominance. Build a city and a tower and let us make for ourselves a Shem, a name. Lest we be scattered, there's another word, over the face of the whole earth. This is high-handed rebellion. The rebels didn't want to be scattered, meaning they didn't want to obey the living God. Instead, they build a ziggurat, a Babylonian ziggurat, which is essentially a pyramid with steps. The base is broader. You build a broad base, and as it ascends, it gets smaller and smaller. Several pagan cultures would use it for astrological practice and the worship of the stars. But at the top was a room for only the elites. So, you know, if the, the, the plebs could only ascend to a certain height, if you didn't have the right credentials, if you didn't have the highest security clearance, DC is not going to let you in the top. Now, as Rush Duty notes, Freemasonry takes these ideals from Babel and establishes them in their pagan organization. So the, the, you ascend to the various degrees, you get to the 33 degree, you're at the top of the ziggurat, you are, you are king, you are God king. Um, it's important to see that in terms of symbolism too, the city is feminine and the tower is masculine. So I have very strong uh, concerns about these obelisks, the obelisk that we see, especially in DC. There's a connection between the city being feminine and the tower being masculine. What we have is a union between heaven and earth. That's what's attempted here. We have a new Adam and a new Eve for a new pagan religious center. The later tabernacle, you remember, is a union of heaven and earth, and the glory of God's name rests upon the mercy seat. The glory of God is in the temple. Thus, here we have the opposite, a a mockery of it, trying to mimic the deification of creation by building a city and at the center a tower. So we have high-handed, this high-handed society of Satan, as Rushduni called it, a society of Satan. Satan, you know, can only mimic and copy. He cannot create and make from nothing. 
So their goal in the text is to reach into heaven by making a skyscraper of sorts, but it was more than simply a glorified edifice, though it was certainly that. It was a project of deification, of power, of self-glory, of sovereignty. If men could reach into the heavens and drag God off the throne and put him to death, they would. That is what's motivating this project. And indeed, what did they do to Jesus? They they couldn't drag him out of heaven, but he came to save them. And what did they do? What did we do with our sin? We killed him. And that's what men who hate God will always do, want to drag him off the throne and try to kill him again and again and again. Furthermore, the tower was a symbol of religious, scientific, and political prestige. They wanted a Shem, a name for themselves. Rejecting the unity of the triune Godhead, they wanted collectivist power and control and dominance. More on this later. Now, in a note of irony, we find in verse 5 that Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. You want a classic case of humor? You should read that and laugh and laugh your face off because it's hilarious. This tower, it was so... (laughs) The Lord's throne is so high above man's religious (laughs) imaginations and machinations. He has to come down to even see the puny, fragile work. He has to come down to see it. Talk about not reaching the heavens. Communicating within his own triune nature, God sees their, their collectivist stunt and the religious folly of it all. They will be relentless And apart from grace, they will be relentless in purposing and willing their rebellion. That's in verse 6. They're always going to pursue this. That's the goal of of fallen men. After Yahweh confuses the language, maybe that's when King James English came around. Confusing the language, confusing the lip, so that frustration would set in. That was the goal here. He thwarts their plans. Verse 7. In other words, God makes them scatter. He makes them scatter abroad, verse 8. Instead of pursuing collectivist unification, man is spread out all over the entire earth, and the city tower project was abandoned. In verse 9, the place is called Babel, or Babylon, which means confusion. But in other ancient languages, it actually can mean gate of the God, or gate of the gods. So both, I think, are at play here. The project, again, self-glorification, self-deification. It was an attempted usurpation of God. And as a result, God sends them away, scratching their heads. Because suddenly the blueprints don't work, because it's in a language we don't understand. And how can you possibly communicate when that is going on? So how, how shall we then live? The core problem that Genesis 11 accentuates is the problem of power religion. Power religion, as opposed to the biblical servant dominion religion, seeks to unify man across all religious, political, and social differences. Unification at all costs. Because they're motivated and animated by a desire to be more than God, they want to be more than God, these rebels must have some level of unity because there is unity in the Trinity. There is unity and diversity in the Trinity, but they want the unity, and so they will exercise power over others to unify them accordingly. 
Rather than unity and integration in the heart by faith in Christ, there is disunity and disintegration in the heart, and that is only ever expressed in terms of rebellion. Establishing by sheer force their carnal desire for authority, power religionists will stop at nothing to bring external and outward conformity, even in a coercive manner, at the great expense of inward harmony and shalom. It's joking about D.C., you go there and you say, no one's happy. Everybody's fighting and arguing, and you wonder why. Well, because you're unifying around something you're not supposed to unify around. The bond of peace is what the Spirit gives us. The bond of peace isn't a constitution, because those are words on paper. It takes a moral people, right, to have a republic, but if you don't have morality, you don't have a religious confession that is situated within God's sovereignty, then you're always going to unify around the wrong thing. And thus you go from a two-party system to essentially now a one-party system. And both sides are compromised in different ways. But that's, that's sort of the unity and the disintegration that ends up happening when you rebel against God. So when men try to make a name for themselves, they will invariably declare war on God. And this is always going to be driven by envy and hatred and the, and the suppression of truth that marks image bearers. You have something coming out of your heart. You, you always do. What is it? Is it a root of bitterness? Is it joy? Is it peace? Is it happiness? Is it strife? Is it anger? All the fruits of the Spirit. We know the fruit of the Spirit, but there's also the fruit of human autonomy, and it's not pleasant. Scattered and spread out, filling the earth and subduing it. Why would we do that? The power religionist says, no, we will not do that. We will assemble against the living God and establish our own order based on force, based on manipulation and control. Thus, sinful men will always desire collectivism. They will always desire collectivism over decentralized self-government. And those are the differences here. Decentralized self-government is what the dominion religion gives you from Scripture. But collectivism and unity at all costs, you know, we will make you love us. Like that mindset. As if you can do that. Make someone love you. <laughs> you can't make that happen. Um, those are the differences. The power religion, dominion religion. And by the way, as kind of a side note, that, that, this is the plan and purpose of the United Nations. It's said as much in their own documentation. This is the plan and purpose of Washington, D.C. It's the plan and purpose of the World Economic Forum. It's the plan and purpose of the World Health Organization. I mean, think for a moment. After the past couple of years, they are legitimately considering giving the World Health Organization powers that the Constitution doesn't give them. It's psychotic. But that unification at all costs, even if you get a cold... It's amazing what they're willing to do, and that's the difference. And it goes back to Babel. The construction of the city and tower here in the land of Shinar was the first great attempt at statism, which is the great idol of our day. Statism at its core is the belief that centralized bureaucracy at the hands of a few is much better than self-government. They... Uh, whether it's in Richmond or D.C., they really believe that they're smarter than you, better than you, and they can govern you better than you can govern yourself. And that's the mantra. 
It's executive power left to its own devices. And when God sends the rebels away, it was both a sovereign judgment and a special act of grace. Well, how could that be grace? Well, I'll tell you how. It's a gracious thing to have an idol torn from your clutches. And you should want that. And we should pray that daily. God, if I have an idol, rip it from me. Because it'll rip me to shreds. And it may be uncomfortable, but it's grace. It's good. And, and, and some may have realized this after the fact, but it is true. That's why it's an audacious thing for you daily and for us as we gather to pray, God, do whatever it takes. And that is scary and even gives me chills saying it. Because whatever it takes could mean a serious rearrangement of your life. And it will be for good, though, because we've arranged ourselves, in this nation at least, in opposition to Christ. And it may be painful to hear God tell you no, but ultimately it is for your good. And children, if listen, make sure you hear me. And learn this now so that you can spare any frustration in the future. When God says no as an answer to prayer, it's good. You may pray and you may pray and you may pray and you think the answer should be yes. But if God says no, it is good. Never assume that because God says no that it's bad. It is good. He works all things together for the good of those who love Christ and are called according to his purposes. No matter how dark and demented and dangerous and difficult it may be, he works it out for good. And these rebels in our text, they wanted to build something to display their glory, the glory of man. And rather than living in God's glorious world, which he made, they are discontented with paying homage to God, and thus they must build their own kingdom, their own dwelling place, a place where their religious apostasy can flourish. But what does God do? He disperses them. He sends them away, which is a good thing for the Lord to do. It was good that the northern kingdom was crushed by Assyria. It was good that Babylon came and squashed Judah. It was good. And it'll be good in America, too. Whatever the Lord intends to do with us, it'll be good. And we're going to have to suffer a bit. But that's, I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? The Bible says that God intervenes in the affairs of men. God truly intervenes in the affairs of men. Job 5.12 records this. He frustrates the thoughts of the crafty so that their hands cannot attain success of sound wisdom. Psalm 33.10 makes it clear. Yahweh nullifies the counsel of the nations. He frustrates the thoughts of the peoples. And we say amen. The problem at Babel wasn't it was man's shoddy wisdom. That was the part of the challenge here. They believed themselves to be the establishers of a total comprehensive faith for all of life. That's what they were doing. They were building a rival faith for all of life. A faith that believes in man's interminable sovereign rule. And that's why atheist, atheism doesn't really exist. It's not even a category. Atheism doesn't even exist. It's not that people don't believe in God. It's that they believe themselves to be God. I said that recently to a young lady at George Mason. You have a God complex, and she was very offended. But I explained it, and she finally understood. You're not an atheist. You just think you're God. It's very simple. <laughs> 
But when men, men craftily attempt to control others through the vehicle of things like Marxism and communism, death is the only result of such folly. To reject God is to become suicidal. To rebel against God is to provoke his wrath. To in, indict God as though you were the judge is to invite his judgment. And ultimately, the rebels are on a short leash. Man is always on a short leash, and the rope God gives them is either going to be a lifeline or it's going to be a noose. And this depends on their willingness to repent. But God does intervene in the affairs of men. God does intervene and smash the wicked. And indeed, we should pray with the psalmist in several places that God would do so. May he crush the folly of Washington, D.C., at its root, sin brings charges against God. Sin brings charges against God. Man in this scenario is the victim. Boy, is that not the case today. Man is the victim of that which is perceived to be unfair. And God is the guilty party. God is the sinner. God is the one who must be punished. Thomas Reed, a Puritan, said it, says it like this. While in the carnal state, self is the pivot on which the sinner moves. Note that. Self is the pivot on which the sinner moves. And the circle which he draws as his own is formed by selfish motives, selfish principles, and selfish aims. Long before a tower is built, and certainly long before a civilization falls into this centralized power religion, we find a man whose self has become maximized. That's the danger of the wokeism of today's culture. It says that, well, I'm not a bad person who needs salvation and deliverance. Instead, I'm a good person who can save myself and deliver others. The desire to live beyond good and evil. I mean, that's an audacious claim today to say that there is such thing as good and evil. The desire to live beyond good and evil. Beyond the categories of binary distinctions like creator, creation, male, female. The desire to live beyond all that, beyond the categories, is a desire to define life in terms of human autonomy. You are all living in a time of massive cultural shift, a massive cultural shift, where everyone is trying to define life on their terms. And it's a disaster. In this world, there can be no differences in culture, only indistinguishable unanimity. Androgyny, abortion, homosexuality, they're all sacramental rites of this new woke religion. To deviate from this collective power religion is to commit the unpardonable sin against the wokesters. You, you all need to live your life as though you cannot be canceled. Because you cannot. You worship the triune God. You are uncancelable. <laughs> Can't happen. But that's what the world's doing, but the gospel says something entirely different, and we'll end, up, we'll end here. The gospel says that when God's spirit is at work in the hearts of men, the heart, the heart of man, his center, changes. And it changes completely, and when you're talking with people and you're sharing the gospel, you need to believe it. God changes hearts. It's made brand new. The Spirit foists us on Christ in his love. We no longer seek to unify around rebellion and all of the nonsense that comes with that. And rather, we unify around the Lord's table and around baptism. We unify around Christ. 
And rather than living in fear of being scattered, we live in the fear and reverence of King Jesus. In Christ, the self isn't destroyed and the self isn't allowed to go its own way. In Christ, it's made whole. In Christ, it's set on a new course. The self is now consumed by the grandeur of God's glory. Pride is put to death and humility is raised to life. Selfishness is replaced by self-giving sacrifice, truly being inconvenienced to help someone in this congregation and help someone who's your neighbor. The weapons of unbelief are replaced by tools of faithfulness and loyalty to God and his kingdom. Centralized bureaucracy gives way to independence and decentralized self-government. I'm all for secession. Let's do it. When the gospel grips a man, his spirit is tempered and quieted. His, soul, his soul's agonizing cup of vain glory is emptied and instead filled with joy. The rebels built a tower but ended up abandoning the project. And this is because the only blueprint that sin possesses are instructions on how to build a graveyard. But thanks be to God that he raises the dead. In the book of Acts, when Pentecost comes and the glory of God descends on the disciples, Babel has been reversed. The nations were divided there at this tower, but the gospel goes forth, unifying them under the banner of Jesus Christ, our King and our Lord. The towers of men collapse under the weight of sin and rebellion, and it is Christ who gathers the nations and builds his people into a great tower, nay, a temple of the living God. Thanks be to God. Father, we glorify you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are with us. We thank you that you've made us new, that you have given us a new heart. We are privileged to serve you and your kingdom in this world, in time and space. And I pray your blessing on our community. Lord, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it at all. We've sometimes allowed division. We've sometimes um, acted like we're power religionists. Sometimes we have simply not lived in a self-sacrificial way. And I pray that you would give us repentance. Help us to live faithful to you. Help our families to live faithfully to you. This community to, to live faithfully to you. We don't deserve your Spirit's work, and so we repent and ask for him to help us, to aid us in the mission that you have called us to. We pray and we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen.